This is Brian Reisman. Welcome to Side Jams, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Please subscribe to keep up with all my new episodes. I'd like to thank Pantheon sponsor AKG for their support of this podcast. I record Side Jams with their AKG Lyra microphone, and it won a NAM Tech Award this year in the recording microphone category. And that's a major audio industry accolade. Kudos. Jeff Firewalker Schmidt is a man who has journeyed into the realms of music, science, and spirituality, in that order actually, and he balances all three. It makes him an interesting subject for side jams. At age 14, he began attending college, studying first at Wake Forest University, followed by graduate work at the University of Bath and the University of Oxford in England. He holds a doctorate in molecular biophysics. Jeff later became an adjunct professor at Wake Forest School of Medicine in Biochemistry, Physiology, Pharmacology, and he is now a Peruvian-trained curandero, which is a healer who uses folk remedies. He played drums in bands when he was younger before science commanded his attention, but now Jeff has collaborated with John Medeski, keyboardist and composer for avant-groove trio Medeski, Martin & Wood, in a musical collective they call Saint Disruption. Their new seven-song release, Rose in the Oblivion, blends jazz, blues, funk, and hip-hop into a sonic brew that explores topics like social justice, consumer culture, and spiritual enlightenment. The group features many notable contributors who we will be talking about. For episode 43 of Side Jams, Jeff and I spoke about his life's journey and the lessons he has gleaned so far. He told me about how he met John Medeski 13 years ago when they were both visiting the same tribe in the Amazonian rainforest of Ecuador by complete coincidence. He also discussed exploring and preserving the wisdom of indigenous people and cultures, the experience of performing at the famed Glastonbury Festival in England, and his views on folk medicine and healing practices. There are many topics on the table, so let's dive right in. Good to meet you. I've heard great things about you. I love your work. So thank you. I mean, I was—it's interesting. Like I was just watching your TED talk. It was just from 10 years ago or 11 years ago now, actually. Yeah, while back. We were talking about your awakening, you know. And I've been thinking—it's interesting. I was thinking about the fact that you know, during this pandemic, we've had a lot of time for reflection, but I don't know how much people have reflected on their lives. Like I've actually been busy with work, so I don't feel like I've gotten that time to do that. And I was hoping that maybe that would be kind of the lesson here. This is mother nature's way of saying, you know, you guys are screwing things up here. You got to fix it. And and a lot of people are, are just want to get back to normal. It's like, well, it's not really the way it works. That's right. We could press the reset button maybe, but should maybe should it be one reset button or another reset button? I'm observing almost like a split you know, there are, are people who are using this time to recreate themselves and, and reformulate their, their worldview and cosmologies and to attend to things that maybe haven't been attended to in a while. And then there are the, you know, mm-hmm. people that I pray so much for that are in such deep fear right now and, uh, and who are sadly giving over their sovereignty and personal authority to... Uh, ever more to outside agents and and to um, to a narrative that is saying that nature is ho- hostile and dangerous and that fundamentally people are dangerous. It's a very interesting. I, I choose to view it as a bit of punctuated evolution that we're in right now. Interesting. <laughs> you got this uh, this project with John Medeski and it and it's interesting. It mixes like a lot of different styles of music, sort of rap and jazz and uh, just a bunch of different things in there actually. It sort of has kind of a through line in a way, but it mixes things up a bit too. It does. And, you know, what we tried to do was meet each theme with a sonic contra- construct that 
you know, kind of emotionally and energetically buoyed the, the, the theme up. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're exploring is not necessarily um, that bubbly and jovial. It's, there's some, you know, there's some pretty serious things being met. And so part of our narrative has been, you know, how do we do that in a way that someone who is a music lover might actually want to listen to it and might lead the person into, you know, sort of a, an exploration of whatever theme that we're, we're talking about. And yeah, we're also kind of doing this as a, as a, um, as a arts collective more so than a traditional band. And when that happens, you know, it, the, the, the boundaries start to blur between people and roles. And so we have this incredible community of like 30 some people now, visual artists and musicians and poets that we're working with. And there's this sort of self-selection, this sort of organic self-selection around each tune that, that, that's happening in a really easy way. And what that does is it creates some diversity. But I, I would hope in the end that it all sort of hangs together because ultimately John and I are kind of holding space for, for, for everything to happen. Well, like, you know, like Flight 19 has kind of a funkier feel to it. And then Pain Storms is very somber, like a ballad, really slow moving ballad. And then show command, very bluesy, obviously, and filled with a lot of sort of a lot of anguish. All it's obviously tying into you've been doing music a long time, but you also are you've been a scientist and now you're into folk medicine and you've you've gone through a bit quite an evolution yourself actually over the course of your life. And what's interesting is that then you ended up meeting John Medeski in the Amazon, which <laughs> just like Kismet. <laughs> what a, what an incredible surprise! You know, not only to meet you know such a renowned musician, but such an absolutely just absolutely saint of a person. I mean, he is, he is one of the, the nicest and most solid human beings I've ever had the pleasure to befriend. And, um, you know, like many things, seeds get planted and sometimes they germinate overnight and sometimes they take a decade. And, yeah. you know, our orbits have been kind of going like, you know, in and out for the last 10 years. And then when I received at the very beginning, when I received Umar Ben Hassan's poem, uh, Pain Storms, I was like, I need some big guns. If I'm going to do this right and really honor Umar, John was like the one person on the planet that I thought of that could do this with me. Yeah. And so that's that poem construct song, whatever you want to call it, was really the seed crystal for this whole thing. And uh, what's super exciting for me and really alive for me right now is that we uh we're in discussions with a major podcast media outlet about John and I actually creating a virtual poetry and music slam construct that allows young poets who are saying really vital and urgent things about what they're seeing in the world, creating space for them to actually have an outlet to not only, you know, record their poems and have John and I composed behind it, but also a monthly uh, podcast or radio show that, um, that allows them to come on and, and speak with other people about what they're seeing in the world. I'm just super jazzed about, about that. Yeah. And that's the way the reason I decided to do this podcast. I'm always doing musician interviews, but then sometimes you have all this extra cool stuff that doesn't make it into a story. Yeah. You don't have the space to cover everything you want to say. And people have like outside passions and things or things that are part of connected to the music, their artwork that people don't always talk about. Tell us how the two of you met in the jungle. I mean, I guess do the Cliff's Notes or the Schmidt's Notes version yeah, of, <laughs> of that. So I was I was um, sort of in the in in the phase of my life where I was really um, you know I had made the decision to pursue 
the call to become a curandero. And I was in uh, one of the deeper parts of my, my training. And, and part of that training is, is working with the most knowledgeable people ab about the domain of training, you know, sort of like my, yeah. I was in grad school at that time. And the sequoia of the Northern Amazon are and have been reputed as, as carrying some of the deepest and most profound knowledge and life ways um, on the planet, especially when it comes to uh, plant consciousness, plant healing. Um, and their cosmology is so refreshingly different from, from ours in the industrialized world. I jumped at the chance when I met someone who is a gringo and actually got indoctrinated into the tribe, got married down there is basically one of the family members. And I uh, went down there with him and we, I mean, it, it was just a mind blowing experience. It's basically what the Ted talks about. Yeah. And we took a day trip to meet the elder of elders, Don Cesario, who remains to this day, one of the most renowned healing practitioners in the in entire Amazon. Um, and we show up and are hanging out and having fun talking with Don Cesario. And then an hour later, here comes, here comes three more gringos. And I literally, I mean, we're like three days from the nearest small, small village. I mean, we're in the middle of no place. And um, <laughs> what I soon discovered is it was John and his wife and a, and a friend who had, and they had come for a very different reason. And, uh, you know, John in his humble sense was like, you know, we're talking, where do you live? Where do you live? And, and he's like, oh, Asheville's cool, you know. I come to Asheville sometimes for work. I'm like, well, what are you into? And he goes, oh, I play a little bit of music. And, and I was like, well, that's cool. Maybe I've seen your band. He goes, ah, nah, we, we're in a weird <laughs> stuff. You've probably never heard of us. I said, well, try me. I'm pretty weird. And he goes, well, um, my band's Modesky Martin and Wood. My name's John Modesky. He's like, man, dude, I've been listening to your stuff forever. You're, you're <laughs> And we just kind of hit it off after that. And um after we got back in the States, probably six months or so afterwards, I um, was still um, a university professor and I helped, uh, he and I worked together to get some visa stuff taken care of so that the Sequoia people could come and record their sacred songs okay. uh, under threat from disappearing. And that was like our first big, you know, the first big thing that we did together. So, so you was, were both there to go on like a spiritual journey or was, it, was there something different for him? Yeah, he was actually there for a very specific um, healing task. He uh, he was getting cluster headaches and no one was able to help him. Okay. Thank God Don Cesario just took care of it, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, you talked about the fact that there's sort of this IMAX theater of the jungle and you had drank something before that. It was like a, like a psychedelic experience that you were having when you were in this place where a lot of these images from your life washed over you and you experienced a lot of different revelations about yourself? Yeah, the medicine is known by many names, mostly uh, known as ayahuasca. They call it yahe, often in the northern Amazon. And it is, it's, it's woven, that medicine is woven into their life. It's, you know, basically like for them, it's basically something that everyone does to stay attuned and to stay focused and well and connected. Um, you know, many, many tribes, um, many tribal peoples in the Amazon you know, work with that particular sacred intelligence on a very regular basis. You know, some Shipibo, uh, they're a little bit further south. Um, mm. You know, some to this day consume ayahuasca almost every day of their lives. Wow. So they cultivate. I mean, what was so humbling for me is that 
they cultivate access to a, a level of, of interaction and consciousness that we are completely shut off to. And that story about the IMAX theater is, is actually, you know, I was invited into that space, you know, in that tribe and a, a few other neighboring tribes, very little practical learning happens in the physical world. Everything happens in this middle world. They even bring their hunting dogs and they give them a special medicine, bring their hunting dogs in to train them how to hunt. I mean, I was so humbled. I mean, they, they have treaties with all of the different groups of, of mammals in the jungle. And so when they go on a hunt, they have already made an agreement with the council of the wild boar about which, which animal they can take. It is elegant beyond anything that I have ever seen anyone in the industrialized world do. I mean, it's their, their connection and harmlessness and just pure sense of presence and joy was just, I mean, I felt like a Neanderthal, truly. Huh, interesting. Is, is the term I've heard with you is sort of like, uh, is it a walker between worlds? Is that the... Well, I kind of jokingly say that. I mean, I, <laughs> I, um, I find, like many people, that the most interesting things in life happen at the intersection between different disciplines. So, you know, it's sort of a... Good point. Yeah. One of my, you know, kind of like, if, if I said I had a strength, it's bringing people from disparate uh, viewpoints, disparate talents together to to disrupt and do hopefully good or maybe even great things if we're lucky. And so, you know, I'm not so entrenched in the illusion of technique and methodology. I'm more interested in ideas and possibilities and putting the right teams together to make them happen. So, and that, you know, allows me, I'm, a, I'm constitutionally a Gemini. So I kind of like easily navigate between different disciplines, different worlds. And this chapter just happened to be about, you know, can I tell the truths that I feel that I need to tell that spirit is instructing me to tell through music and visual art through the media of, um, of videos, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just having a grand time doing it. And who knows what's next? I might go back to quantum mechanics. I don't know. Uh, is that, is that, is that where you got your PhD from in Oxford? Um, I got, I actually got my PhD in uh, biophysics, but with my first really big project that I led, which was a industry slash academic um, big consortium cal- uh, collaboration, I uh, was one of the first people to use quantum mechanical frameworks to simulate entire biological systems. Wow. It was a time where cluster computing was actually, actually making it possible to do calculations of that order. And, and because quantum mechanics to this day is still pretty much the most robust model of, of the you know, microscopic world, it was certainly the method of choice. So I, I, that was one of the most fun things that I ever did, but I got so into it, man. There was a, there was a year period where I would be driving home. I, the university that I worked at was a couple hours from my home and I would stop and get gas. I'd be so full of thoughts. I'd say, Oh man, I'm kind of thirsty. I'd walk in the gas station, get in my car, forget that I had the gas, the gas nozzle in my car and drive off. And I did that like 
friggin' eight or nine times. One time I pulled the entire top. It was an old gas station. I pulled the entire gas pump off of the, off of its mooring. Oh God. Going every place. Um, I really, really absent-minded in that. That was a year period where I was just a, you know, couldn't, as my, one of my mentors used to say, pour water out of a boot with the instructions written on the heel. I was just a mess. (laughs) (laughs) That's just an interesting metaphor. (laughs) You know, you were teaching for many, many years. You were a professor for many years, 20, 30 years. Yeah, I, I uh, loved loved teaching, and um, I was teaching graduate level courses in biophysics and right. electrical simulations, stuff like that. Had you know had graduate students and ran a lab, and I was kind of straddling industry and and because uh, I'm an entrepreneur and, and university for a long time, and then ran an innovation center. Yeah, got to do a lot of different things. You know, basically, I've been pretty blessed. I just basically do what the hell. No ways you're fortunate, you know, not everybody gets to do that or say that they can do that and and survive. (laughs) Oh, man, yeah, I'm super lucky. And as a consequence, you know, I I think for my songwriting, you know, kind of getting back to the probably the core point of why we're talking is that um, is that I've I've studied a lot from philosophy to history to, you know, the great the great minds that have, you know, gifted us with writing. So I feel like I've got a pretty broad grab bag of imagery and historical reference and allegory to 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 draw on when it comes to songwriting and right now that is super super exciting for me i mean that's really the idea of of stringing words together that tell a story and propping it up with uh with music is just wow it's so exciting so you had this journey to the sequoias in 2008 and by the way, sequoias makes me think of the sequoia trees in California, which I always loved. I never, I still had never been there actually, but I always was fascinated by those pictures as a, as a kid. And she went there in 2008. When did you stop teaching? And then when did you start switching over into, you know, practicing a Peruvian folk medicine and sort of embracing sort of a new lifestyle that you didn't have before? I was actually doing both for a very long time. I had this kind of like, mm. um, you know, my, the two worlds didn't touch and my, and my, my task was to try to bring those two worlds together in harmony. I, I practiced and did medicine work and, and, you know, worked with clients for more than a decade while I was still doing university research and entrepreneurism. And it was just all kind of on the side. And one day, um, you know, it was one of these sort of tests, you know, I had the most awesome job I could ever imagine. I had, you know, like, all the money I could possibly want to make stuff happen. Um, I had two secretaries. I just basically was just like a, you know, in terms of invention and creativity, I was like a kid in the candy shop. And, and one day spirit was like, it's time to walk. And I was like, Oh, fuck, really? Yeah. You know, yep. It's time to walk. So I talked to my family and they were behind me. They're like, well, if that's what spirit's telling you, what your teachers are telling you, then, Okay. And that was, um, it was like, I guess six, six and a half years ago now. Yeah. 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 So, um, I ended my professorial teaching at that point. And, but I still, you know, I, about that time I started ramping up a, uh, uh, an organization called the Eagle Condor Council, which does advocacy and education in indigenous wisdom and indigenous healing traditions and have been, 
um, is sort of leading that charge since, and we've become, you know, like one of the largest organizations of our type and on the East Coast, and we've got, you know, a couple thousand people that are pretty engaged. We have a mystery school that we run every year, and pilgrimages to Peru, and it's 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 a great time. So I, I continue to um, have the fortune of being able to teach and and share and and express that part of myself through the through that organization. You're in North Carolina, so were you were you teaching in college there? Yeah, I was at the medical school at Wake Forest University. Yeah, yeah, for many, many, many years. Yeah, I kind of grew grew up there. I was, for lack of a better term, a child prodigy, and I was work. I started working there. Gosh, at 14 years old, you know, I'd go there after school and work in labs. And and you graduated college at 18, right? I was a little older than 18, but yeah, I started college at 14. Um, well, it was undergrad is what I meant. And then you go on to other yeah. things. I had a, I had a, a guidance counselor who saw a four letter word floating above my head. And that was uh, J A I L. She was like, man, this boy's going to get into trouble if I don't find him something to keep himself occupied with. So she, <laughs> she, was, like, <laughs> she was like, you should, t-. I was like 13. She's like, just take the SAT, see what happens, see what happens. Cause you're bored. Aren't you? And I was like, God, I'm bored. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was, that was the changing, that was a defining moment, really. I was like, someone actually saw that, that I needed to go a different path and got behind me. And so that was my ticket out of, out of the, the normalcy. And, and uh, yeah, my life's been crazy cool ever since. Well, I know you've, you've published a lot of papers. You've, you've, you, hold, you hold a lot of patents also, don't you? Yeah, I, li- I like to invent. For a while, I, I kind of considered myself more so than anything an inventor. But the patent game gets old after a while. I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, you know, 20 years from now, no one's going to give a flying crap about any of that stuff. Are there any interesting, any of the interesting things you're proud of that you patented? Well, yeah, I guess one of the things that I was most proud of is that I was able to, you know, we I was part of this group that um, unraveled a fairly significant mystery about how certain aspects of cognition work. And those certain aspects of cognition were actually quite connected to why nicotine is so addictive. And um, Mm. with this consortium, it was a global consortium of researchers. And um, we kind of figured out how nicotine functions in the brain and why it's so different than any, any molecule we've ever seen. I mean, it's just amazing. And what we were able to do. And at the same time, some friends of mine were, doing all these epidemiological studies showing an inverse relationship between smoking and neurodegeneration. So basically their findings were if you smoke any, at any period of your adult life for five years, your chances of getting neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's or Lewy body dementia is reduced almost by half. And if you're unlucky enough to get it, you get it when you're, you know, like five years older than the average, if you hadn't smoked and like, wow, there's a neuro, protective aspect of this what the hell's going on could Mm. we actually tease apart using design tease apart the the bad stuff that's harmful like giving you heart attacks and and messing with your um, peripheral nervous system versus all the good stuff and so we were able to actually do that we actually were able to figure out how nicotine was functioning as kind of an aerobics workout and, you know, trip to the gym every time you smoke for your, for the brain and actually developed a, you know, basically took a company public based based on that. And that was where I did, you know, the majority of my, my patenting uh, uh, having to do with 
molecular design technologies okay. and around um, designing potential treatments for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, et cetera, et cetera. It was a wild ride. It was wild. Well, it's interesting, you know, you talk about, I think, having spent some time with the Sequoia people and also, I think, being in a natural environment. And I know in your TED Talk, you're talking about a lot of this, a lot of the fact that we sort of have these problems that the medical, the modern medical community couldn't really address matters of the heart and also like literally and metaphorically. It sounds like you're trying, you found a balance of science and natural healing in your own life. I assume you think it's very good you can get from either of them, depending on what the circumstance is. I'm I'm trying to find I'm trying to find a way so that my own life can be an authentic reflection and inspiration for others to find their way because right. my way my way your way is your way and you know I am just like tireless when it comes to questioning our mental models and assumptions and getting to the root of where those mental models and assumptions come from. Because unless we do that, we're going to continue these shallow and false narratives that don't really move us in a positive evolutionary direction. It's tricky. Like there are certain things I I think that, you know, obviously modern medicine are great at handling, but then there's other things that we, as we've noted, there's a lot of pharmaceutical stuff that you don't need to be taking that, you know, there's certain things that maybe is a circumstance, but there's, uh, I, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. You don't need it. All these shortcuts are like, if you know, you can't lose fa- weight fast enough, you have a diet pill, or if you have this problem, you know, you solve it with, if you don't like the way you look, solve it through plastic surgery and all these things like, yeah, no, it, it's not. And a lot of what you're talking about. And I think in your Ted talk is also talking about acceptance of yourself and understanding, letting go of your ego and being able to accept yourself, but also working with a community of people being interconnected with people. And we have this kind of strange world right now where we seem to thrive on a sense of community, but it's not really. You go on social media and everyone's concerned with their opinion. They're not actually concerned with connecting. They, they just want to spew out whatever they have to say. And they don't actually really aren't interested in that interaction. It's a very kind of a strange thing. I'm not trying to think about with a good metaphor for it. Well, it's like a, it's like a, it's a masquerade ball. It really, I mean, social media is, is unfortunately for the most part is, is degraded to a, a format where you can basically put on a face that you want to put on. And, and the reciprocal of that is that instead of, you know, the major um, social media outlets providing you and presenting you with an objective and curated picture of what's happening in the world, you basically, in quite a few cases, are just given stuff that helps deep more deeply entrench you in your worldview. So, you know, yeah. the tragedy of all of this is that if, if you think of the emergence of social media and the internet in terms of biomimicry, in terms of the evolution of planetary systems, um, really the, the, you know, starting with DARPANET, the, the emergence of this query system, essentially what it is, is akin to, a multicellular organism laying down a nervous system on a physical level. So we have laid down a physicalized system for reflexive self-consciousness. So every single cell, each one of us using that metaphor as a cell, can query the, the entire system and potentially get information at a level that has not really been easy before on a physical level. That is a huge evolutionary step. It's an amazing and, and positive thing. Mm. And yet absence enlightened leadership and enlightened 
deep discourse about the the implications of that, we end up with the, the sort of interface between that new distributed in, intelligence system and human beings that is highly faulty. And because it's so distributed and so complex, and this is what the social dilemma talked about was like, oh my God, we had to, you know, we built this thing to interface to this meta system. Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious. It's kind of like out of our control now because it's so distributed. Oh yeah. It's a, it's an issue of complexity theory. You know, it's like, we don't, we've built this thing right on that edge of, of, of capital C complexity. So we can't necessarily anticipate its behavior. And that's what we're seeing. Well, I think a lot of people thrive on that endorphin rush that they get from that con- the confrontation on social media, I think in a certain way. I mean, it's like even the whole cancel culture thing, I think I now call it out- outrage culture. People just want to be outraged anyway. So even if you're right about something, they just want to be outraged. People just want to be angry. It's very strange. Like people are so bored that they, that's why soap operas were more popular. I think back when we were when we were younger, when there were less sort of entertainment options and there wasn't social media. Now it's almost I feel like social media has become the soap opera for a lot of people. Well, when I mentioned the the freak show aspect of this, it, it kind of goes exactly to the heart of what you're saying. Or at least I hope it does. Mm-hmm. You know, things phenom like uh, cancel culture, I believe, is a reflection of the the unrequited need for. Um, human beings still have because we've evolved since time immemorial with this of of um, initiation and rites of passage. Hmm. Things in our life, in our minds, in our belief systems need to be canceled. We need to die many times over our lifetime in order to take a step in the next direction. We can only hold so much as human beings. So, you know, in traditional culture, you have rituals where you let go of, of childhood. You let go of particular uh, connections and things that prevent you from taking the next step. And we, as human beings, you know, what I've discovered in my work as a curandero and as a teacher of native wisdom is yeah. that we are still desperately hungry to feel that. So the, the idea of battle, the idea of, of darkness and death and all this kind of stuff is still you know swimming in us unrequited and we don't know what to do with it i always make the distinction there's a difference between being childlike and childish mm-hmm. and i'm seeing that more and more i've seen that with social media i think a lot of people it's i think it is hard in this culture to let go of our self and especially now when you see how many people liked your post and how many followers you have and it's a popularity game and a lot of the mental illness problems and even the body image issues you're bringing up before seem to stem from this desire to be liked by everybody or to be popular. You know, we, we act like we're a culture of individuals, but we're really not. Yeah, it's so as much as we talk about, as I talk about individuality, we're actually really a big herd that actually kind of shuns the individual. You, you can do, you can be just individual enough, right? But not too much. We don't like that. It's so, I'm so glad that you brought, brought this up because my vulnerable and truthful learning edge in this moment is the fact that social media, I'm getting the impression, doesn't like too much what I've got to say. Um, I think, we're, we're, <laughs> Probably uh, not. you know, we're, we're, you know, we've kind of, you know, the imagery that I use in my videos and the, and some of the narratives and stuff are, are just kind of like poking the hornet's nest. And what we've noticed is that we're getting throttled. And it's, it's, it's um, in this painful place of understanding that I, I want to make St. Disruption a huge success and get the music, the medicine, whatever you want to call it, yeah. to people that will enjoy it and maybe, you know, um, 
get inspired by it. And I'm finding that in this moment that I had assumed that, that social media was going to be just like a, a snap because, you know, I think about our whole community of musicians, we've got, you know, 40 or 50,000 people in our pool of likes, you know, but at the same time, it's like our message when we, when we, when we do either non-paid or shared stuff, it's not getting to people. And that is, Oh yeah. That's messing me up. Look, I've been doing this podcast for almost two years now. And I once had a podcast shared by an artist with like half a million followers. They got three times the traffic as the podcast shared with the band that had 2 million followers. It's the, it's engagement. It's not the actual numbers. You can have tons of followers and no one's hearing your message. You know, I make an analogy about like something like Transformers, the movies, you know, everyone's pretty much aware when there's a new Transformers movie out. But even then, think of how many people actually see those movies compared with the number of people. You've probably got at least 2 billion people in the world, bare minimum, they are aware of the new Transformers movies out. How many, how many of those people actually go to see it? So when you start to look at it that way, yeah, it's, but you know, you have this bio art collaborative, you know, you're, you're bringing in scientists and artists and philosophers together to kind of appreciate each other's disciplines. And you want to do this poetry slam thing. And it really seems to be a lot of that goes in degrees. Like it, it, everyone sort of has to become, everyone sort of has to have their own community and collective and a gradually that message unifies when these different groups come together. Um, I've realized that it's, there's very few things anymore that can reach people on a mass scale like that. It has to kind of, it does have to start at this grassroots level. And then over time it changes. It's kind of the, the shift I see in generations. I think, I think more like the younger millennials and Gen Z are more evolved and are, I have a very different view of the world. And that's why I think a lot of people, especially in this country are kicking and screaming about, you know, change because they don't, you know, people in my age and older don't like the idea that a lot of the stuff from their childhood is going to disappear in 20, 30 years. A lot of the stuff I grew up with, eh, it's going to be gone. And you know what? I have to accept it. No one's really going to care about the movies or their bands, or the artists or authors. I mean, some of it will carry over, but most of it doesn't. And I think there is an idea that you feel irrelevant and obsolete, or you can kind of try to join that tide and learn and grow and accept that. I mean, I, I accept certain things that I grew up with might not be considered so cool or PC anymore. Or they're this and that. Some of it, I roll my eyes and some of it, I'm like, yeah, you know what? That was the time period and I can enjoy it, but I can understand why someone half my age is going to be like, you're nuts. <laughs> exactly. Wise, wisely stated. And there's no place, I, I think that music is one of the places that is, um, you know, the, the folks of our generation are being most challenged because, yeah. um, you know, the, the idea of record labels and recording studios and, you know, putting out a, a, a work in in a, in a curated environment, you know, is for all of its faults, you know, the record industry had a curatorial dimension to it, you know, and last week was it Spotify had the all time rec one day record for song submissions, 60,000 songs in a day. (laughs) It's a lot. And it's a challenge that you face because there's a lot of digital noise out there. Uh, For me, even as a podcaster, as a writer, you know, Unfortunately, what seems to thrive is controversy. I get the most attention out of something that's very controversial. And I, I don't go chasing the controversy. If it just happens to be controversial, so be it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you, you, you definitely have a challenge in, in, in that. And, but then hopefully the, the, the advantage of then doing what you're doing with the podcast, or like the, the poetry slams, is that you archive it. And then that archive grows and more people get to know it. And that then you have your music up there. 
Medeski, Martin, and Wood came of age when the indie labels really exploded. They'd existed beforehand, but by the 90s, when CDs were cheap enough to manufacture in mass quantities, then all of a sudden Tower Records was flooded with a lot of these indie labels. And there's a lot of stuff that got out there and a lot of independent release stuff that got out there that we wouldn't have heard. Great stuff. In the previous decades. And, you know, there was a lot of crap. It's usually the 90% of everything is crap rule. But there were, I think they were on Ryko, weren't they? At a certain yeah. point. Was it Ryko Disc? Yeah. And that was the time when that stuff thrived. And now the, the, the new ways you have to, you have to kind of get it out there. And even if you have it on streaming, you still have to have a, a machine of some sort. It's very, the viral thing is interesting. It's an interesting analogy. Things going viral with, and it doesn't always last long either. Yeah, that's true. What we're trying to do it, with um, the record label, we're starting with Teddy Kartsman and Aaron Casey, our, our manager. Yeah. Is we're, we're, you know, we're asking the question, is there a way that we can, we can structure things economically so that we have enough flow enough of an audience where a little bit of the revenues that come from our our works can actually be funneled to organizations contributing to real positive change in the world so the the idea a couple of years from now my hope is that that there are lots of people listening to all the the bands that are under root doctor media right. and they know every time they listen just a little bit of revenue goes to making positive change in the world right now that the economics are not making sense but we're working at it and we hope that that will be something that we can in a really strong way offer because right now you know one of the great things about times like these when there's a everything's a big stirring mess is that it's also time for creating new models and trying new things and harnessing all the energy of that chaos to go in another direction. So that's sort of what we're dreaming into. The Eagle Condor Council is supports traditional communities in Peru. You have the BioArt Collective. You, I guess, there's a, you, you've been doing workshops. Is, is it hosting wisdom? You have these on these workshops that you've done at Glastonbury and other festivals. Oh yeah, the wisdom keepers. This is a, a- wisdom keepers. Yeah. organization a friend of mine ben christie who's a, a real change maker luminary um started a few years back and the the narrative among a number of um elders carrying uh wisdom traditions from around the world there's 12 of us now yeah the question was how do we address the the hunger and the, and the needs of of young people in a positive way and how at the same time because they are connected how do we show that it's not a good idea to continue destroying indigenous wisdom with impunity. You know, is there a way to make that linkage? And the conclusion was that it, at festival culture is the way that you could actually get in front of as the largest number of, of young, hungry, interested people with the least amount of effort. Yeah. So the big, the biggest, most, I think really most exciting thing that we did was 2019 Glastonbury. We were featured guests and we got to open up main stage acts. I mean, you know, the, the um, one stage of Glastonbury is like the largest temporary stage in the entire world. I mean, this was unbelievable to be able to stand on the stage with the chief of the largest tribe in the Amazon with Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter, who's a rainforest advocate and a number of other indigenous leaders to be able to lead 50 or 60,000 people in a collective prayer for the healing of the earth and, and thus humans. I mean, you know, we had a, had a a central encampment where we kept a sacred fire. We did workshops and 
you know, our entourage through, you know, by the end of the festival, we were, we were able to touch tens of thousands of people. It was really, really wonderful. And my hope is that St. Disruption will come to the point when, when, when live performances back, that we'll kind of be like the house band for those sorts of events. So instead of a bunch of musicians and bands coming together who don't know each other, don't work together, you know, imagine how much more powerful if those sorts of events would be if, if the music was delivered by people who had been inten- intentionally working to shore up the power of that framework. So I'm super jazzed about, about that coming down the line, too. I was thinking about the fact that the last time I think in the mainstream we had any sort of sort of consciousness raising movement was sort of like the new age movement of the 90s. That was something where, unfortunately, a lot of stuff got mixed together. That was an era where you had all the contemporary instrumental music, you had world music got popular, and Peter Gabriel had the WOMAD uh, tours and the real world label, and you had all this stuff going on. You had all these new age and crystal stores, but then unfortunately a lot of that got commercialized. So it went from being about kind of learning about meditation and learning about other ways of thinking and spiritual ideas to how can we market this and put it in stores? Do you think we could see another movement like that? That's less diluted that could come to the the mainstream. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, My prayer is that by actually modeling, you know, it's, it's like be the change you want to see in the world. I mean, as, as, as cliche as that has become, I mean, that is really the core. And if we can create, a community of musicians who are essentially spiritual family who are supporting one another and being their, their best selves and realizing their dreams and holding compassionate accountability and being radically inclusive and creating dope ass music. You know, all, all I can do, I don't, I can't tell anybody else how to be or believe or think or whatever. All I can do is try to try to model what creates freedom and happiness and balance and equanimity. And it just happens to be with my, you know, with my brothers and sisters who are doing music and visual art with me right now. So that is, I think what makes it different. The intention isn't going out and being an activist or changing stuff. I think the the, the impetus is coming from the place of authentic creation and community. And also my whole thing is my life is, ever since Thich Nhat Hanh said this has been really singularly informed by, I think this very um, poignant teaching. And it's simply this. He said that the next great teacher or teachers that are going to come to this earth that are coming to this earth mm-hmm. are not individuals. They are actually groups. They're actually in the form of the sacred hoop, the Sangha. Um, and, and it is through the, alignment of these people of the harmonious creative interaction whether it be just killer improvisational jazz or you know a, a, an amazing theater production the signals that we need to help move us to the next level of our conscious evolution are going to come in that through those channels that has informed me more deeply than any single teaching in the last 20 and I noticed the drums there in the background too. So I'm a recreational drummer, is what I like to say. Hey, hey all right. Uh, we should, should we, we probably should have to shout out to some of the people that were on your album. There's a lot of different people that show up on the album. Oh my goodness, yes. I think a really super the biggest shout outs are to, of course, Umar Ben Hassan for actually saying yes to to 
showing up on my album and reading one of his poems and then reciting one of my poems for the song Stories. You know, Umar and the last poets did such an important thing by, you know, in the civil rights, in the original, you know, civil rights movement here in the U.S. by putting truth-telling in the form of poetry on top of music so that people could feel not alone in their in their striving in their journeys um to have him say yes was just extraordinary and to actually have the honor of befriending him um so big shout out to umar also um agent 23 you know cactus who was a grammy winning um conscious rapper he is responsible for my introduction to Debrisa McKinney, another Grammy artist who sings on the album. Um, and then through her and a couple other people, I met Datrian Johnson, who sings. He's the vocalist on um, Chocoman and some other stuff. But Chocoman is really, really, I think, really had an opportunity to really shine. This this guy, he and Debris are some of the best vocalists that I've ever heard. And I get to work with them. I mean, it's pretty wild the co-producer of our first of the first album uh michael hines bass player extraordinaire as well all of our business team from john medeski's mc artists and uh, shorefire who do our publicity um aaron casey our um manager ted teddy kartsman these are just the most amazing people that you'd want to just be friends with and we get to be friends and get to work together and the list goes on and on and on we uh um the visual artists the business folks the musicians we we have a team of like some 30 people it's it's great it's really wild it sounds like you're having a good time oh my goodness yeah (laughs) (laughs) well thank you thank you oh yes and to you brother so I'll be curious. I guess it can be posted when uh, when your podcast starts up. You got it, brother. Yeah. Great to connect with you today. Well, thanks, man. Blessings to you, brother. That wraps up this latest Side Jams. Please join me next time when my guest will be Leaves Eyes singer Elena Sirvila. The tunes used in this episode are from Fox and the Law, and I licensed them through AudioSocket. Thank you very much for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 